Hi everyone, this is Ryan Alice, Chairman of Hive, and I'm here today with Professor Rebecca Henderson. Uh, Professor Henderson, how are you today? I'm extremely well, Ryan. How are you? Doing very well. Thank you so much for joining us today on Hive Minds, our uh, podcast and video podcast for leaders who are committed to doing good in the world. We're very glad to have you here. Well, I'm thrilled to be invited, Ryan. I really enjoyed the uh, Ryan session, uh, the uh, Hive session I joined in San Francisco. And uh, I'm truly in awe of the community you've been able to build over time. It's super exciting and it's a privilege to be able to talk. For those of you watching, I was actually a student in Professor Anderson's class in 2016. I took her reimagining capitalism class while I was an MBA student at Harvard Business School. And let me share a bit uh, with the audience about your background before we get started. So Rebecca Henderson is a professor at Harvard Business School. Her work explores how purpose-driven businesses can be a force for good in the world. She teaches the Reimagining Capitalism course in the MBA program, and she's the author of the upcoming book, Reimagining Capitalism in a World on Fire. So Rebecca, what are you most interested in and focused on right now? Right now? I'm focused on finishing that book. Yeah. <laughs> it has to be finished. But um, I'm really excited about it. I mean, it seems to be a moment in the zeitgeist when people are really talking about reimagining capitalism. Uh, when I first started teaching the course, I think people thought, well, this is kind of interestingly academic. You know, I like talking about these concepts. Maybe it will come in useful. But my sense now is, is people are beginning to go, whoa, we really need to do something. We really need to change. And so a lot of people have said they want to read the book, which is super exciting, but that means I need to finish it, which I will do. Um, it'll, be out, uh, it'll be out in spring next year. Okay. And, and what's, the, what's the underlying premise of the book? The underlying idea is that we're in trouble. We face a number of enormous problems and that one of the most promising routes to solving those problems is to mobilize the business community and specifically the purpose-driven business community to think about how we can change the rules of the game, how we compete in the world, how we think about building businesses um, to really change the system. That, that's the big idea. And that's the enormous idea. <laughs> and do you believe business can be a big force for good in the world? I do. Um, it's not a mainstream opinion if you're not a business person, as you probably know. A lot of people look at me and go, you know, business has a very checkered record. Um, but I think, given where we are right now, business, in fact, has an enormously important role to play. One of the issues is that government seems to be paralyzed at the moment. Um, right across the world, not just in the US, our government seem to be having a super hard time addressing problems like climate change, or inequality or inclusion. Hmm. And at the same time, um, it's becoming increasingly clear that we can build powerful business models around addressing these problems. Hmm. So you see thousands of firms building purpose-driven businesses which are aimed both to make money and to, and to do well in the world. And I think that's beginning to go mainstream. You can see people in finance noticing that firms that perform well against ESG metrics um, are, are doing that and are doing it on a consistent basis. Yeah. Um, you see the big investors saying, you know, firms should have a social purpose because they can see that if we don't change the way in which we're 
we're moving, we're at risk of losing the whole game. Yeah. I think uh, lots of people mention this, but I think Larry Fink's letter saying, you know, business should have a social purpose, that yeah. was really a watershed. And I've been talking to a number of people in finance who who really can see that the problems we face threaten the integrity of the entire financial and economic system. So I'm sort of going all the way from the small to the large. We have individual firms that are making money by treating people with dignity and producing products that don't pollute and that will make a difference in the world at the one end, and they're gradually transforming their industries. And at the other, we have some of the people who control most of the capital saying, we have to shift. So, uh, So it feels like a perfect storm to me. You mentioned uh, two things. One is ESG. Does that stand for environmental, social, and governance? Yes, it does. I'm sorry. There I am, throwing around acronyms. Um, This is the idea that if you're really going to understand the performance of a firm, you shouldn't look only at the financial metrics. You should look at how they're doing environmentally, how they're thinking about social issues, and how they're governed. And to me, that's a, a super important step forward. Because if we only focus on on money, if we only focus on the financials and only on the short term, Mm -hmm. it's much harder to build a more purpose-driven, more socially oriented business. And you mentioned this Larry Fink, who is the CEO of BlackRock, one of the largest asset managers in the world. They control billions, maybe trillions of dollars. And I'm going to quote quote that letter that you wrote, uh, you mentioned just now, that he wrote. He says, society is demanding that companies, both public and private, serve a social purpose. To prosper over time, every company must not only deliver financial performance, but also show how it makes a positive contribution to society. Companies must benefit all of their stakeholders, including shareholders, employees, customers, and the communities in which they operate. As a researcher, as an academic, as an activist in your own way, what was it like to have one of the largest asset managers in the world write that letter. Amazing. I mean, Mr. Fink controls $6 trillion worth of assets. Um, You know, in most of the firms in the US economy, the publicly traded firms, he owns about 5% of them. I mean, it's it's enormous. Uh, I I think in some ways, you know, an analogy I sometimes use, it's like when Martin, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the church door. You know, it's like, whoa, this is really a shift. I mean, he could not be more mainstream, more conventional, more ordinary capitalism. And, uh, and it's such a striking statement, and he hasn't backed off. I mean, when it first came out, I got phone calls from friends who are CEOs saying, he, he doesn't really mean it, right? He's just, you know, just, uh, I don't know what, but he he can't really mean that we need to think about these other issues. And that to me was one of the clearest signs of how important it was. I mean, it really got attention, really, really got attention. So, So in your research, have you uncovered an empirical link between purpose and profit for firms? Um, so I see it in my own work. Definitely, and uh, but I think it's also important to realize we see it in the work of hundreds of researchers across a wide variety of disciplines. Yeah. So I first ran into the link, the link between purpose and performance when I was studying innovation and uh, just qualitatively, just having conversations with people. And I, it, it seemed to me that people who really needed to change fundamentally were those that had a strong reason to change. That simply telling people, well, we'll make a lot more money if we do things differently, wasn't really very motivating. 
But if you could tell people this is how we'll make the difference in the lives of people or communities, then people get super motivated. So that's what got me interested in this whole area in the first place. And then I started looking at the research on productivity. And, uh, you know, one of the data points that still just makes me tingly, I'm a researcher, so data makes me tingly, okay? Yeah. The, the data point that makes me tingly um, is summarized actually in work by a guy called Chad Syverson from Chicago. And he summarized like a huge number of papers. And he said, the most productive firms in every industry, this is on average in every industry, the most productive firms in the industry, that's the top 10% most productive firms, are on average twice as productive as the least productive firms, the bottom 10%. Mm-hmm. And it's not because they're using different capital and it's not because they're using different people. It's because they're organized better. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I cannot stress how, what a breakthrough finding this was. It, it was one that had been knocking around in the economics literature for 20 years. I mean, I spent the first 20 years of my career sitting in windowless rooms, listening to people trying to make this result go away. We used to call it firm effects. I had it in my own research. You would be comparing the productivity of firms and you'd see that some firms were just much, much more productive than others. Mm-hmm. And you couldn't sort of see an obvious reason for it. Not until we started looking at how these firms were managed. Mm-hmm. And then once you look at that, what you see is the high productivity firms are those that, you're ready for this major breakthrough, talk to each other, yep. have you know, real communication, Um, promote on the basis of merit rather than on the basis of seniority, Um, run long-term teams and, um, and focus and focus on, on concrete goals. So, I mean, when you look at that list, it looks like classic what the, uh, the old organizational psychologists used to call high performance work practices. So we've got the data that some firms are much more productive. They do high performance work practices. Well, then you go, why doesn't everyone do that? You know, if it's all about using teams and, uh, and trusting each other, why doesn't everybody do it? And that's where my own research really comes in. And anyone who's listening can check out my website at the business school. And I have a ton of papers in this area and so on. But really, if I just summarize all that research in a few sentences, what makes the difference is trust. Hmm. And trust needs to be earned and built. Yeah. And if you're a purpose-driven company, the odds of building that kind of trust, we call it in the papers relational contracts, but being able to build long-term relationships that that people align with your values, see where you want to go, and then when you say, let's do this, then everybody says, okay, we'll do that. Mm -hmm. So what trust does is build the foundation for being able to use much more effective management practices like radical empowerment, like um, pushing authority down to the people who have it. And that seems to be what drives performance. Now, there are tons of other reasons to believe that purpose would drive performance. We know that people who are purpose-driven are much more intrinsically motivated, so that rather than working for the paycheck, they're working for the intrinsic value and joy of what they're doing. We know that people who are purpose are purpose-driven are more likely to be authentic in their dealings with other people. That really helps them build social relationships. That again helps them build trust. Uh, we know that some people just feel better working for firms that have a mission and their identity changes, and that helps them to work harder and be more aligned. I have a slide which summarizes something like a hundred studies of the relationship between purpose and performance. 
and, um, and all the different mechanisms that it uses. I haven't written it up because you should know academics don't get points for writing up literature reviews. Yes. So, um, you know, I'm happy to share the literature review with anyone, but I haven't written it up. But it's quite clear the literature is super strong, the purpose drives performance. And then when you stand back and you say, okay, do good measures of, of performance correlate with financial performance? You know, bottom line, not just productivity, but do they do better financially? We have a number of studies. I think the strongest one of which is the paper by uh, my colleague, George Serafin. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and he's shown, this is a super paper. Um, he shows that purpose is not correlated with financial performance. Freak out, right? Whoa, what's happening? Then he divides the sample of firms into two groups. One is which everyone feels like a family, mm -hmm. and the other is in which everyone has clear goals and a clear sense of strategy and how the purpose connects to that strategy. Mm -hmm. And he finds that if you have purpose, but really the purpose is about making everyone feel good, that we just feel like a family, that that is not linked to financial performance. Mm -hmm. It's not linked to performing worse, it doesn't destroy performance, but it doesn't raise it. But if you have clear strategic goals and everybody knows where you're going, then that's very tightly linked to financial performance. So if you have clear purpose and good accountability, you can have better results. Exactly. The purpose without accountability, purpose which is simply feel-good statements or we're having a good time, that seems not to translate reliably into bottom-line results. Um, it, it's that link, and that makes sense to me. I think purpose-driven leaders to succeed need to be better managers than more conventional managers because they need to be able to make money when sort of classically easy ways of making money, cutting corners, doing the wrong thing, are not available to them. Okay. So in order to be a purpose-driven leader, you need to be a superb manager, as well as someone who can hold the purpose and values for the organization. Got it. Okay. That's a big takeaway that we're going to be talking about. Purpose plus accountability equals results. I think so. I think so. P-A-R, purpose plus accountability. Oh, I like it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> right, I'm writing it down. <laughs> uh, so, so I want to talk about capitalism for a few minutes. So, you know, there is a general understanding among um, leading business schools, among, you know, sort of the Washington Geneva consensus, if you will, that free market capitalism has been one of the best inventions you know, of the last 500 years. Obviously, it wasn't invented in the last 500 years, but the modern form of corporations and competition has been more or less invented the last 500 years. Uh, you once wrote that free market capitalism is one of humanity's greatest inventions and the greatest source of prosperity the world's ever seen. The Earth's, the Earth's gross domestic product has quintupled in the last 50 years, even as the population has doubled. Average GDP per person per capita is now over $10,000, enough to provide every person on the planet with food, shelter, electricity, and education. And billions of people have opportunities that their parents could only dream of. So for a moment, you know, what's good about capitalism? What makes it work? What is it about this system that has brought billions of people out of poverty? So, in a minute. That's why I always hesitate. It's like, why is capitalism so great in a minute? So in a minute, um, 
capitalism is efficient. It uses prices to coordinate production. So uh, Milton Friedman used to use the example of a pencil. He'd say, you know, look at this pencil. I bought it for a nickel or something. But it has wood from Malaysia, lead from South Africa, paint from Europe. um, And no bureaucrat designed how this this pencil was going to come together. Now, if you were doing it today, he would use a cell phone. You know, a cell phone has hundreds of components produced by thousands of people, millions of people all over the world. And it sells for, in real terms, almost nothing. I mean, a cell phone has a computer in it that 10 years ago you would have paid hundreds of thousands of dollars for. Um, So prices are fabulous signals of what people want and what's available. I think the second reason that capitalism works so well is the fact that it's powered by self-interest, which is one of its greatest weaknesses, but also one of its most important strengths, means that people are always looking to do things better, always looking to do things faster and cheaper. And so capitalism is an engine of innovation. Um, We know technically that the price system maximizes welfare. That's a result from, from neoclassical economics, and it's true only under certain conditions, which we'll come to. But in general, we know the price system super good at driving wealth creation. It's, it's less formal, but we also think that capitalism is the best way we've found to really drive innovation. Mm-hmm. And then the third reason I like capitalism, and I think it's easy to forget, is that in the economic systems before capitalism or instead of capitalism, so often what your job was or what you could do was dependent on who you knew or who your father was or who your friends were or where you went to school. And when capitalism is working well, when it's genuinely free and fair, it lets everybody play. It doesn't matter if you're purple and have tentacles on your head, you can start a firm, you can accept another job, you can create your own life. And we tend to take that for granted, but it's a central feature of capitalism. And when you look at what's happened in China over the last 20 years, which to me is one of the best advertisements for the power of the the free market, And you read some of the novels that come out of China, they're all about finally being able to get off the farm, away from backbreaking, dull work, and do their own thing. Build a firm, make movies, do whatever they want. Um, And so, yeah, I I think capitalism is amazing. I really do. Okay, great. You know, from a human welfare standpoint, I I think most people would agree that uh, capitalism has been a, a significant net positive impact to humanity the last few hundred years. But let's look at the other side for a moment. You, you also wrote in the same uh, book proposal that this success from capitalism has been costly. Capitalism is on the verge of destroying the planet and destabilizing society. Much of the world's topsoil is degraded and demand for fresh water is outstripping supply. At the same time, the burning of fossil fuels the driving force of modern industrialization is killing millions of people while simultaneously destabilizing the Earth's climate, acidifying the oceans, and raising sea levels. We're running the risk of destroying the viability of the natural systems on which we all depend. So what, what needs to shift? What needs to change? It's like, oh, whoops, there was a byproduct. Yes. <laughs> you know? There was a side effect. Oh, what needs to change? So I can say it simply, but it is not simple. What needs to change is we need to take account of the value of natural and social systems. 
for so long, we've essentially assumed that the natural world was free, that we could take what we wanted and dump what we didn't need. So we've been throwing poisons into the atmosphere and the ocean. We've been cutting down the trees. We've been using up the soil as if, as if it were free, as if there were no constraint. So that needs to change. Uh, we could do it through regulation. We could do it through pricing. We could do it through out-out controls. But we need to build a capitalism which acknowledges that the natural world is scarce and valuable. Technically, we need to price externalities. <laughs> I want a price for, for uh, greenhouse gases. You know, if you throw carbon dioxide out the window, you're inflicting very real health costs on very real people and destabilizing the climate for thousands of years. You should pay for it. Um, and we, we know that when you price things, capitalism responds. The second thing we need to do is acknowledge that the social world is also not free. For years, hundreds of years, capitalists were able to assume that someone else would take care of building strong communities, of investing in education and healthcare, of, uh, of building the social structure that allows capitalism to flourish. Um, I remember reading once that, you know, no one measures the amount of time and energy and heartbreak that grows into, that goes into growing a human being who can be a doctor. You know, someone just does it. <laughs> well, it's not for free. And capitalism has started to sort of actively turn on the social structure that nourishes it. The extraordinary inequality we're seeing, the use of people as things rather than human beings. Um, as kind of interchangeable units, and the threat to replace people wholesale with robots and AI. I mean, these are real threats to, uh, to, to human community. Mm. And so that's the other thing we need to change. We need to, uh, we need to think about how we rebuild societies. And that, I'm afraid, and here comes the kind of unpopular bit of what I'm going to say. Yeah. That means rebuilding government. That means rediscovering the power of inclusive democracy, really transparent democracies that can invest in, in uh, things like education and healthcare. And, and I hate to say this, that can impose some of the taxes we need so that we share the wealth, so that everybody gets to play. Everybody is included in capitalism. Um, so that's a lot, but, uh, but I think it would make a huge difference. If you were to take that there were three major global forms of capitalism, the, the Chinese model, the Scandinavian model, and the American model. In your perspective, who's got it best uh, so far? So far? Um, I, you know, it's such an interesting question. The American model was so successful for so long. And the Chinese model, I mean, they brought a billion people out of poverty in the last 20 years. That's amazing. But if I had to choose, I'm going with Scandinavia. I'm going with a balanced model where, um, yes, the market is super important, but it's embedded in civil society and um, controlled by a strong, democratically responsive government. I mean, in the States, we still don't have mandatory maternity leave. Mm. I mean, this is like insane. Um, you know, we, we don't seem to be able to provide the most basic protections for our citizens. And so to me, the Scandinavian model is increasingly looking much stronger. 
Um, the other reason to celebrate the model is they're doing super well. I mean, Stockholm is the second most innovative city on the planet by some measures. Mm. I think it has the second highest rate of startups per head after San Francisco, but, uh, but super innovative, super productive. It's not that reimagining capitalism means us stopping having the kind of good life we want. I don't think we need to make that choice. Got it. So we can still be competitive, we can still build companies, but it's doing it in a way that prices in externalities and takes care of our people. Ryan, you put this so much better than I do. Yes, <laughs> that's exactly <laughs> what I mean. <laughs> I have to learn to say things in fewer words. <laughs> no, it's good. It's, I'm, I'm, I'm on your team. We're on this together. We're in this journey together. Okay, so here, here's what it comes down to. Are you optimistic about the next hundred years of human existence on Earth? Why or why not? You know, optimistic is a tricky word. Um, I think it implies that, you know, if I'm to say, well, yes, I'm optimistic, it implies that I'm sure this is going to happen. No worries. Let's just kick back. We're set. And I don't feel optimistic in that sense. Um, I think we're in a very difficult and dangerous place, but I am hopeful. I think that um, the fact that we need to change is, is really clear. And the, the fact that we can change and we can build a much better and more sustainable society is increasingly visible. Mm -hmm. And that combination, the sense that if we don't do something, we're going to a very bad place and that we can move, I think is enough to shift the system. I think humans are super smart and very ingenious. Mm -hmm. I, I think we can solve this problem. I think we will. I think we are. Uh, two last questions. Uh, what inspires you? Um... I continue to be inspired by the students. I have the pleasure to have in my classes. They are amazing human beings. They are simultaneously deeply cynical. Uh, they say, oh, come on, Rebecca, you can't really think that business could save the world. And, uh, and deeply hopeful. And more and more of them are dedicating their lives to the shift that we need to make. And, uh, and that's a gift and an inspiration that keeps me going every day. And lastly, and feel free to elaborate as much as you want on this answer, what advice do you have for our audience of rising global leaders? Hive today is a community of 2,800 alumni and members in 130 countries. And this video next week is going to go out to not only all of our alumni, but 103,000 people on our listserv. So this video is going to be seen by thousands of people who are rising global leaders who are committed to making a difference in the world. No pressure, but what advice do you have as a professor, as an academic, as an activist, as someone who cares about the world for what these rising global leaders can do and think about in their careers? I think we take ourselves both too seriously and not seriously enough. It's so easy to get caught up in one's own life, to focus on the next thing that has to be done, the next promotion, all the details that make up life. 
And we think that they're important. And they are important from some perspectives. But from others, they're not important at all. Um, I'm a, a Buddhist, and I, I sometimes say that means I have good news and bad news. <laughs> the, uh, the good news is that it means we're not going to die. The bad news is that's because we don't exist. <laughs> we're just patterns of energy on the wind. And uh, sometimes the phrase I like to use, we're, we're songs the universe is singing. And I think that's hugely freeing. We do not have to fix these enormous problems alone. We're part of a living, breathing universe that is striving for wholeness, that is trying to build a healthy and inclusive world. And if we can hold that balance between, yes, you need to do what needs to be done. And my guess is everyone watching this video knows what they need to do. But if we can do that, but not get too attached to it, not get too bound up in it, not get too afraid. So my advice is move with courage and joy. We're all going to die. Use that to give you the strength and the energy and the love you need to make the changes we, we must have in the world. Mm. Thank you, Professor Henderson, for your time today. Thank you for coming to speak at Hive a couple years ago in San Francisco. And thank you for coming to speak at Hive in 2020. We're, we're looking forward to hopefully having you as the, one of the keynote speakers of the Hive Global Leaders Summit in 2020. We're very much looking forward to that. I hear that your book's coming out uh, next May. Is that, is that right, May 2020? Next April. I have a publication date in April, so... Uh... It'll be there. Ryan, you couldn't keep me away from the, the gathering next summer. I'm really looking forward to it. I really appreciate the honor you do me in inviting me to talk to, to all the members of the network. And I look forward to meeting many of them. Thank you very much. Well, thank you so much. Well, thank you for taking uh, the time to call in today. And uh, for all of our community out there, you can learn more about Professor, Professor Rebecca Henderson's work at the Harvard Business School website. Just Google her name and you can find her research there. And we very much look forward to uh, reading your upcoming book. Is the current title Reimagining Capitalism in a World on Fire? Is that still the title? Okay. We will, uh, I'm going to pre-order my copy as soon as I can. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Rebecca. Have a wonderful afternoon. Thanks a lot, Ryan. Take care. Take Bye. care. Bye-bye.